Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. Today I'm joined by Nick Moore, author of Who Am I? Vulnerability equals powerability. In this conversation, we discuss Nick's life growing up in Texas under patriarchal household. Nick highlights the importance of being vulnerable and learning to take off our masks. Nick discusses his early life and the circumstances that led to his Adderall addiction. From there, Nick shares the traumatic experience that caused him to call Child Protective Services on his father. Nick shares his healing journey and how he's worked with psychedelics, including psilocybin mushrooms and DMT. We then discuss confronting shame and guilt in light of the traumatic sexual experience Nick had with his first girlfriend. Nick shares the story of why he later moved back in with his parents in an effort to save her from an abusive relationship. Next, we discuss the toxic habit of lying, and most importantly, of lying to ourselves. We discuss how one is either green and growing or ripe and dying. Then we consider ideas including predestination and the butterfly effect. We discuss the idea of daring greatly and the challenges people face in being honest and in finding their courage. Nick shares how every decision we make is either out of fear or love, and we enjoy sharing some of our favorite Jim Carrey quotes. We end the conversation on the characteristics of positive masculinity, as well as how to practice self-love and discernment. This outro is titled Vulnerability, Confronting Darkness, and Finding Faith. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. If you like the show, please drop a five-star review and subscribe on Substack, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please enjoy. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Jordan. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely, man. Really glad to have you on the show as well. Uh, would love to just kick off, if you wouldn't mind, giving the folks a little bit of uh, background on uh, who you are and uh, where you grew up. Yeah, man. I was born in Baton Rouge, but I grew up in Texas. Um, I grew up in a very patriarchal type of household. I grew up learning that violence and um, things like racism were actually a positive thing. and um, yeah, life has changed a lot since then. Um, I see things much differently than when I did growing up. But uh, my life for the first 18 years or first, I'm sorry, 23 years was really focused around football. And uh, I wasn't too concerned about anyone but myself. I was selfish in a lot of different ways, especially when it comes to women. Um, but life has its way of of breaking you. and. Uh, now I'm here to really help the world see the power of, of vulnerability. I believe that vulnerability is the way that we can truly connect more deeply with each other. Uh, most of us are hiding behind masks because we think that these masks are the way that people will love us. I have to act this certain way or I have to be like this. or And most of these masks are preconceptions that we had from when, you know, from zero to 18 when we were in our parents' households. Um, so I'm really hoping that through telling my story with my book, that people become more vulnerable in their own lives, um, begin to start having conversations because we're all human. We all hurt people at times. We all have things that we have shame or guilt about. And the more open and honest we can be about those, 
the more we can realize that we're actually not alone. Um, that we're a lot more similar than we think. Well, thanks, Nick. That's that's really interesting. So, you know, you mentioned that after age twenty three, uh, is that is that when you left Texas? Um, that's when I got out of college, and that's when my focus began. All right, football didn't work out. I thought I was going to become a f- professional football player all my life, and now it's what what's next. And what I've always learned is, all right, the way you become a man is now it's time to go make money. And making money was the next big focus. Now I wanted to prove my dominance over women. I had already proven that I was physically willing and able to get into fights and whatever that meant, all these ideas of what I had to be a man. Um, And at 23 is actually when my Adderall addiction began. Um, You know, I thought that that was a performance enhancing drug for the work world. And, you know, I, I was taken at it all for quite some time after that. But, um, yeah, life had its way of of bringing me to a different spot and seeing things from a different perspective. Yeah. What what was that journey with Adderall like? Um, it was something that I didn't, you know, once I got prescribed it when I was in college. And I didn't take it every day when I was in college because, again, I was a football player. It's a diuretic. I was always trying to either maintain my weight or gain weight. So it's kind of hard to do when you're taking a diuretic. So I would use it for studying in college. But then once I got out of college, all right, I don't need to try to gain weight anymore. And hey, this is something that I see as something that can help me get on the phone. You know, I, I got out of college and got into a 100% straight commission job. Not something I would 100% recommend to everyone. But it did teach me a lot about myself. But at, once you get into that pattern of, of taking something like Adderall, it's really hard to get out because almost everything seems impossible to do without it. <laughs> like, how do I even start the day? I'm going to be droggy all day and, you know, I need to be up. I need to be awake. I need to be focused. And more than anything, it actually puts a mask on you. And, um, the most beautiful you is underneath all the masks. Wow. That's beautifully put. So you said that, you know, after that uh, point in time, you know, your, uh, your perspective kind of was, was cracked wide open. And I'd be curious, you know, what was it, you know, along your path that really fundamentally changed your perspectives? Sure. So I'm going to just to give the audience a little bit of a, a buffer or a little bit of a warning. I am going to talk about some pretty heavy subjects. Um, my life really fell apart about eight years ago and I'm gonna, I'm not going to tell the story leading up to this. I can, we can go back on it, but if you're asking the the point where I was really broken, that life really changed for me, uh, was about eight years ago when I called CPS, uh, on my dad. Uh, I believe that he molested my niece. And I believe that this started when she was about two and a half years old. At that time, things were swept under the rug. And then I saw something. It's not like I saw anything explicit, but what I saw led me to believe what I believe. Um, And that was when she was about nine years old. And at that time, she covered it up right away. So she was, in my view, trained to cover it up. Um, And that also led me to the belief that it happened to my sister growing up. And in some ways, 
I believe that my sister has somewhat protected my dad in the scenario of, of him molesting her daughter. Um, I know that may be a very hard thing for people to hear or people to grasp or understand. And something that I've learned is that the guilt that's held onto by the, the person that's being molested, if it was something, you know, so not everyone that sexually molests somebody is, let's say, um, skilled at what they're doing. And, and that's a terrible way to put it, but I don't know any other way to put it. But it's natural for a child or anyone, if you're getting touched in your private parts, it, it should feel good. If, if it's not something that is really rough or anything. So then you get this guilt playing like, okay, well, I enjoyed it. What does that mean about me? I'm just as much to blame. And there's this, you know, I believe that's where a lot of dissociation happens and it it's becomes so confusing for that child. And it really just stops their emotional growth at whenever they realize that, Hey, I don't think that that was right. But I'm not, I don't have the skills or the ability to actually confront it. And that's when a lot of things come into play, such as addiction or whatever it might be to cover up those wounds. Um, so as far as, you know, with my family, um, it's been something that no one has been willing to accept. Um, my brother and dad sent me a cease and desist letter. Um to stop distributing my book. Um, I believe I'm in my full first amendment, right. And I've gotten a lot of, uh, legal advice that, you know, I don't, I think I'm doing everything in my power the right way. Um, but that broke me, you know, my entire life, I didn't necessarily get along with my dad, but I did look up to him. You know, he helped me become the football player I became. Um, so, when you reach this point and you're like, okay, I'm accepting this as my belief. I can't deny this. I can't sweep it under the rug. What does that mean about me? You know, that's my dad. So, you know, the, the title of my book is Who Am I? It's because I believe that's a very important question for us all to ask ourselves. And I believe that we're not defined by our past but the past will continue to define us if we aren't able to reflect on the things that we have shame or guilt about. So when I was, when that broke me open and I was really depressed, I was suicidal looking for answers. I was teaching high school geometry that year. And one of my friends suggested mushrooms. I took psilocybin mushrooms for the first time. And that night was the first night that I, let's say my third eye was opened. You know, I saw closed eye visuals. I started questioning God. It's the first time that I really started asking myself, who am I? And by the end of that night, I was looking in the mirror and I was more suicidal than I'd ever been. I didn't get the answers I was looking for. I felt like I was in a fight with God, but nothing came from it. And I had heard about the molecule DMT uh, about a year or two prior to this. And when I first found out about that, I was told that we believe that this is the molecule that releases when you die. My scientific mind was like, you can't know that. <laughs> That's impossible. 
And second off, at that time, I wasn't depressed. And I was like, no, thanks. I have no interest in exploring that at all. Fast forward a year or two. Now I'm super depressed. Just did mushrooms for the first time. And I want more answers. So I ended up learning the chemistry. I got the materials and extracted it and made my own DMT. And the first time that I ever smoked DMT, I know that maybe some of the listeners are more familiar with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is about a three and a half to four hour experience. If you're smoking the isolated molecule DMT, it's about a 10 to 15 minute experience. But that 10 to 15 minutes, if you smoke enough, it truly does. You, you think that you're gone. You think you've, you've reached your final resting place. Um, and I was in this just complete state of awareness and where all of the epiphanies came from me, everybody's experience is different. And I believe that it only gives you what your consciousness is ready for or what your consciousness is, is able to comprehend. Um, because of the, the things that had led me to this point, the willingness to give up my life for something bigger than myself, the willingness to throw my family under the bus and, you know, really just say, Hey, this is the truth. This is my truth. I, I ended up in this white void and in this white void, there was a noise happening and I knew I had control over the volume of the noise. I turned it all the way up. I heard a big boom. As soon as I did that, I realized I broke the sound barrier. And when I did that, I realized that the sound barrier was just an artificial limit. In other words, you can't break God's eardrums. With that one small realization, Jordan, I realized that every single limit was artificial. Um, it was in this white void. And then although I didn't, I wasn't aware of a body, I didn't feel like I was in a body. It was just whiteness everywhere. I realized I could take an infinite breath in, infinite breath out, and then I realized I didn't have to breathe. Sat in stillness without breathing for a moment because I don't, I can't say it was any longer than that. But when I came back to my body, I mean, I went in super depressed, pissed off at God, like, why would a good God allow such terrible things? And without a doubt, when I was back in my body, I knew for certain that my dad had to be him for me to be me. I didn't know that I was going to be publishing this book. I didn't know that I was going to have this really powerful poetry to share with people. Um, but I knew that I had a purpose at that point and I knew that everything was fine. Like it's all okay. You know, we're in this, we're exploring infinity and we have to have the darkness for the light to be able to shine. Wow. So that was, um, that was after the DMT experience. How, how shortly after the, um, you know, your, your realization and catching your father with your niece, like how, how long was that interval? Um, so that was probably about a six month period between the time that I witnessed what I witnessed. I tried to talk to my family about it. I got turned away by everyone. No one was willing to see it. And then, um, yeah, then I'm living in a house actually with my sister at that time. And, you know, I, it was a really interesting time because I, I was depressed, even though that my students that I was teaching wouldn't have really known that I'm depressed. I, I'm very good at staying positive, 
you know, being in sales for seven and a half years or eight years after college and reading a lot of self-help books and the power of positivity, all those things. And, and those things are really important, but we just got to make sure that we're not doing any sort of spiritual bypassing, which is something that is common. And what I really hope to accomplish with people reading my book is the exact opposite of spiritual bypassing. I'm really asking people to dig into the shadows. So the way my book works is I'll tell part of my story. And then at the end of each chapter, I'll ask the reader reflection questions. So it is interactive and I'm going to try to get you to think about things that you may not have had thought about in a long time. And if we don't confront, so let's say Jordan, that you did something, you know, when you were 16 or even you did something when you were 32 and you have some shame and guilt about it and that you feel bad about it. But let's say all you want to do is just shove it down. All right. I just, if I just shove it down, don't tell anyone about it, ignore it, then, hey, it's not going to come back because I'm just not going to look at it. It's my belief that if we do that, if we just try to shove it down and ignore it, then that pattern will repeat itself either in this lifetime or the next. My belief is that if we are able to actually confront it and look at it and have be real about it, then that's where the healing comes in. And we can actually build deeper connections with the people that we love the most when you know, we all want love and a lot of us feel that all right the way that i get love is to is to be this way and i can't let all the ugly sides of me be seen because they won't love those sides when the truth is and hopefully through reading my book people can understand that like oh my god this guy told me he wrote about things that <laughs> No one would ever know. Like super embarrassing things, things that I, you would think that no one would understand. But this human experience is really confusing. You know, we we do weird things, especially when it comes to romance and sex. And we're all just trying to figure it out. And if we try to ignore those things, that's where it gets ugly. You know, let's let's be real. Let's really talk about them. And that's the way we can actually have better connections with each other. Yeah, absolutely. So what were the circumstances that, you know, led you to connect the dots to, you know, your, your sister also being traumatized and then you eventually calling CPS? Yeah. So if you want me to rewind back to the, what led me to move back in with my parents, because ultimately I would have never found out about my dad if I wouldn't have went through this process and it starts when I was 16. Um, I had been with my girlfriend for over a year at this point. We had been talking about having sex, but she wasn't ready yet. Um, she grew up church of Christ. I'm not too sure how familiar you are with that, but that's a very strict form of Christianity. Can't dance, can't have music. I mean, it's, it's very, very strict. And if you have premarital sex, you know, you're going to hell. And if you do, it better, that better be the person you marry. And I grew up Christian too, but it wasn't nearly as strict. And I don't know how it was for you, but in the way I grew up, I did not want to be the last of my friends to lose his virginity. You know, that was, 
that's a way I prove myself that I'm a man. I, I can't be the last of my friends to, to lose his V card. So it was something that w- I thought was important. And although that she wasn't ready and we'd been talking about it, we were messing around one day and I thought I would try to get her to have consent. And after she told me to stop, I was like, you know, I asked her, I said, Hey, it's okay. And then the second time she said, I said, it's okay again. And then I took her silence as consent. Um, and it happened very quickly. You know, a few pumps later, I have a satisfactory release and that is immediately met with horror. I see that she's crying. I, I mean, it blew my mind. I, I, I did something that I thought that I was not capable of doing. I mean, I loved this girl. At least I thought I did. You know, I don't really know what love is at that time. But it's something that, you know, I felt absolutely terrible for. Um, and I do want to just rewind just a little bit because it took me years to really understand this or really, like, I guess I knew at the time. But the first time that I ever slipped in and it wasn't on accident, that's a small form of rape. And I think that that's something that really needs, people need to understand, and especially guys. And I think that talking to our younger generations about these things and really being really open and honest about it, that's the way that we're truly going to help them the most. If we just try to ignore it, it doesn't help anything. But so I felt absolutely terrible after that happened. Later that night, the way that we made it better was that we had consensual sex that night. Um, That was the only way for me not to feel like a rapist. And, you know, she said that, you know, I could have, I could have stopped you and, you know, but it, it just wasn't enough. So we continued to stay together for three and a half years throughout my entire high school. And the only reason why I broke up with her is because my older brother told me not to bring a girlfriend to college. And I took his advice. I was still in love with her. Um, and I honestly thought that she would be the girl that I would eventually marry at some point. Did that mean that I was going to save myself for her? No, I had a double standard in my mind. I wanted her to maintain that I was the, her only one. You know, I'm the only person that she had sex with. She grew up Church of Christ. No way she's going to venture down that path. But it's okay for me to go do whatever I'm going to do because I'm a man. So that double standard and that hypocrisy really, you know, came into effect later on when I'm really reflecting on these things. But um, later down the road, you know, she ended up in a very heavy situation. Um, I guess it was, you know, she's probably like 28 or so, or 29, 30, something like that. And she was married. And I remember when she got married, it's because she got pregnant. I remember she was with a guy that she didn't like that was not a good guy. She said she would never marry him. And then the next thing I know, she's married. And it's because she got pregnant. And when that happened, I went on find a wife. <laughs> you know, I thought I had her on the back burner. I always thought that she would be the one that I'd come back to. And now that she's married, I need to go find a wife, which I did. Um, didn't work out, of course, because it was for the wrong reasons. But when I initiate my divorce, I get back in touch with her. And now I find out that she's been sleeping in the closet 
She was weighing 90 something pounds. Her hair was falling out. She was going through postpartum depression for the second time. She was telling me these horror stories about him hitting her, about how he had slammed her head on the tile floor. And this information wasn't just coming from her. I learned this from her brother as well, who I'd kept in touch with. So I, I feel responsible. Like she's in this situation because of what happened when I was 16, because of what I did. She went on this dark path, spiraled out of control. And now she is literally afraid for her life and the life of her two kids. She thinks that, Hey, if I leave this guy, I really do believe that he will kill me. And unfortunately that is a real thing that does happen sometimes. So I was at my wits end, you know, about a year had gone by. I talked to her brother. I talked to her parents. I am writing letters. I'm trying to do everything I can to try to get her out of that situation. Because again, I felt like it was my fault and I couldn't do anything. And then I lost contact with her and, um, I'm a financial planner at this time. And one of my clients, and then again, I was still Christian. One of my clients recommended a book called wild at heart by John Eldridge. It's a Christian book for men. And I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Braveheart, but that was my f absolute favorite movie all growing up. And I feel pretty confident that John Eldridge, that was his favorite movie because he references Braveheart throughout the book, like all the time. He references Braveheart, he references Gladiator, like all these movies where, and even stories in the Bible about men giving up their lives for something bigger than themselves or sacrificing themselves or like doing, you know, whatever it is. And it's not like I just read a little bit of the book and like, all right, I'm supposed to go kill this guy. I, I know that sounds crazy <laughs> to the listeners. Um, in my book, you'll read the quotes from Wild at Heart. You'll read a little bit and what's going through my mind. I read a little bit more. What what else is going through my mind? And towards the end of the book, there was a um, a passage from Galatians, I think. Uh, and it's something to the extent that the laws of men only get in the way. So when you're really doing some of God's heavy lifting or God's work, that the laws, you got to ignore them. And when I read that, Jordan, I know it sounds crazy, but I, it was the first time that I ever felt free. I remember I was in my apartment and I, I just started crying and I was like, oh my God, like I, I found my purpose. My purpose is to save Carmen and her two kids. And whatever, whatever I had to do to do that, I was totally fine with being executed in Texas, premeditated murder. You're getting executed. I was totally fine with going to prison for the rest of my life. It was totally okay. And I felt like, okay, I don't have to care about my job anymore. I can just focus on this. And I was going to try to get away with it. Um, but I wasn't, it didn't matter if I did or not. I knew that I was going to be a prime suspect. So I was like, okay, what can I do to make it look like I'm not planning a murder? So I moved back in with my parents to become a, a high school math teacher. I was like, all right, that'll look good in court. If I'm quitting my job, move back in with my parents. No, I'm not planning a murder. What are you talking about? I'm going to become a teacher. So 
And I really want to be clear that the universe did not want me to harm anyone. Um, while I was waiting on a gun, I had paid $750 to a guy in the Hells Angels who had met on a hitchhiking trip that I went on. And I was literally waiting on a gun from the black market. I had already had it planned out. I knew how I was going to do it. I was going to try to get away with it, but I didn't care if I didn't. And while I'm in that waiting period, I find out from my parents' neighbor that she got out. Um, so it was like, of course, I'm ecstatically happy that, that she was able to get out on her own, that she actually did it. And, you know, I, I didn't have to do anything drastic like I had planned. But then I kind of felt lost again. I was like, well, man, I, I thought that I had this divine purpose that I was supposed to give my life up for something bigger than myself. And now like, okay, what am I doing? I'm living back home with my parents. And, you know, within about a month of that or so is when I was, you know, sitting down studying um, for my math exam and I go get something out of the fridge. And as I close the door, you know, my, my dad comes out of the garage and puts his arm around and pokes. Um, I didn't see exactly where his finger went, but I, I write about that in the story. I won't, you know, tell it, I won't you know, tell that entire story, but it was, a, I came to the conclusion where I could not escape it. And there were so many things that had happened in the previous years that had been just kind of swept under the rug that now they're all replaying in my mind. And I just could not escape that, that conclusion. And, um, it was really difficult for my brother to hear that, even though there were lots of things that just got ignored. Um, and it was tough for me because my brother's the one who told my dad, um, my truth. Um, and it was the, you know, he told me that he was going to tell him on Friday. He was like, Hey, if you don't tell him by Friday, I'm going to tell him. And he told him on Thursday night, which ended up in a very, very awkward conversation on that Friday morning. But ultimately all of that led me to become super depressed. Like I mentioned earlier looking for answers and without a doubt and Jordan, I know that you haven't read my book yet, but I, I do hope that you do because it's already having a big significant impact on people and their understanding of vulnerability. But the poetry that I have, this book that I'm sharing with the world, they would not exist if my dad wasn't who he is, you know, is he ever going to go to prison? No, I don't believe he will. He'll be a free man till the day he dies, more than likely. That's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Um, and another tough pill for people to swallow is the fact that I still love my dad. You know, is he a good man? No. Um, does he have some good qualities? Sure. You know, like, it's not as black and white as we think. You know, we want to believe okay pedophiles like the worst thing that exists and you know we're all humans and um i think the you know something obviously had to have happened or at least i assume that something happened to my dad growing up and maybe if if there was a book like mine written at that time or if you know everything in my opinion happens exactly as it should but going forward, you know, from where we are today in human history, I'm hoping that 
we can have more open and honest communication and especially with guys because we're we just shove it down mm-hmm. and we just try to and that stuff can turn into something really heinous and, and ugly yeah most definitely yeah and like you say about you know um how child abuse can just kind of perpetuate right and i've heard it called before uh the gift that keeps on giving and it's very, very tough to break that habit once it's begun. So, um, so after you called um, CPS, you mentioned you were living with your sister at that time. H- how have things subsequently played out? How is your relationship with uh, your various family members today? Yeah, so sadly, um, I love my sister. She's been an addict ever since I can remember. I mean, I, you know, I think that she started using substances when she was in junior high or so. Um, and I tried to have conversations with my sister. I tried to use medicines to help open her up to where we could have more real conversations. Like, you know, we took MDMA together. Um, we took mushrooms together, LSD. I was in smoking DMT. I was trying everything. I was like, how can I get her to open up? And I, she knew I was writing this book. She knew that I, I told her, Hey, this is gonna, I'm gonna publish this at some point. We need to talk about it. And at one point, after I had tried over and over, I promised her that I would never ask her about it again. I was like, My book's gonna get published. She's like, Fine, great, do whatever you need to do. And I, I think it, there was a lot of dissociating happening. And that's just, you know, how our, our defense mechanism on how, how it typically works. But sadly, you know, once the book did come out, she's pissed and she's still pissed. Um, sadly, she believes that my book depicts her in a really negative way, which I, I don't believe that any of my readers are looking at my sister with any sort of, shame or guilt like that that she's in the wrong like how can you if my beliefs are true then that's a really tough life and yeah everybody's just trying to do their best you know who knows what types of conditioning or things that she was told like if anybody finds out about this our entire family's ruined and it's all the blame and guilt and shame and who knows what all the stories that my dad just you know really conditioned in her mind that you cannot let anyone know this or your life is over my life is over our entire life our entire family's lives are over so it's a it's a tricky thing but i have high hopes that Eventually, my relationship with my sister will be better. I believe that at some point, my brother, sister, mom, my mom's still with my dad, that they'll see what I've done in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Because Jordan, I look at you as you're my family as well. You know, my personal story, yeah, it's, it's, uncovering some real darkness within my family but it's so much more important than just my family you know like my this story is helping people 
already from all around the world. And it's just the beginning. So I'm a big believer that trying to protect your blood, your family is really doing, it can do the world a disservice Mm -hmm. because we're all in this together. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that your father ever abused you growing up? So no, not sexually. I was the youngest of three. So I was very lucky to not, I was the golden child. I made straight A's. I was really good at athletics. You know, my sister was in the middle. So a lot of attention was on her and what was going wrong there. And I mean, I got slapped upside the head, you know, like with a rug or something like that. Like nothing, nothing crazy. I saw violence. I saw my dad get into fights when I was young. He started a riot at my sixth grade football game um, by using the N word and, you know, shit hit the fan. And it was, it was a wild story. That's, that's chapter one. Um, and I saw him be violent in other ways. And what I learned is just, all right, don't piss off dad. <laughs> you know, I was a mama's boy. Um, and I'm incredibly fortunate and lucky for all the love. And dude, my dad supported me so much in my football. You know, he was, he never missed a game. You know, there was all sorts of things that he was living vicariously through me for sure. But I, I, I enjoyed it and I wanted to make my dad proud. You know, I was, I had a, at the time I thought I had a perfect childhood. Um, in high school, my mom had an affair that really threw a wrench in things. Cause then I'm pissed off at my mom and, but my dad's trying to get her back. And I learned lots of habits to lie. Like I was a really good liar for a long time. And that's something that I've tried my best to remove any form of lying. And there's a story in my book that it's, it's in the later chapters. Um, it's, it's another one of the embarrassing ones. So I was an Uber driver, um, in Texas before I came to Hawaii for a couple of years. And I had been practicing celibacy, uh, I went about two and a half years before I came to Hawaii without even jacking off anything like that. Um, Unfortunately, that's not actually the best thing for your prostate. If anybody's wondering, Uh, now I have the prostate of a 50-year-old man. So it is good to keep that somewhat regular. I mean, of course, there are things that you can be very unhealthy with that. But when I was first on this celibacy path um i was doing airport rides at the airport and when you're an uber driver and you're waiting for rides at the airport you have to sit in this lot it's called a queue lot and you see that okay i'm 122nd in line and now i'm just waiting for these numbers to go down and you know the old saying that um idle hands are the devil's workshop or whatever that is uh, when you get really bored and I'd been practicing celibacy and I, and I, as I was walking around the lot, just like trying to get exercise, I saw people watching videos on their phones and I guess they were doing it with a second cell phone because if you watch a video on your phone, it actually kicks you offline. And I didn't realize that. And I had 
if you go offline twice, you lose your airport pass. Like you can't do rides at the airport anymore. The first time I went offline was because I forgot that I scheduled a lunch with an old college friend. So I, I went offline. The next time was I just couldn't fight the urge. And it was just like I I went in my car, watched a quick porn video, and I jacked off into a napkin. And the next thing I know, I lost my airport pass. And I told my roommate at the time, I was like, dude, I have no idea why I get kicked off. Like, I don't understand. Like, And the reason why I bring that up is that chapter is about lying to ourselves. I believe that the last form of lying that we are able to give up is the lying to ourselves. It's because I didn't want to believe that that was why I got, I lost my airport pass. I did, and no one would ever even know this story unless I wrote about it because it's not like Uber said, Hey, you were watching porn. So you got kicked off. It was just, Hey, you lost your airport pass. You went offline twice. But eventually I, I was like, man, this is what happened. I'm pretty sure that this is why I lost my airport pass. And, you know, we laughed about it. Um, but at the time I could not wrap my head around because this is already after I had this spiritual awakening, like I should be, you know, we have these ideas that all right, life's just going to be easier. I'm not going to do any more dumb things. I'm, you know, but we can, life continues and we will continue to have ups and downs. We'll continue to do silly things. But the hardest person to really be honest with is with ourselves. Um, so that that's the reason why that story is in my book. That's the reason why it came up. But yeah, it, it's a tough one to realize. If when you're lying to yourself, it's it's kind of hard to see. But the more self reflection you do, the more uncovering of the shadows. And Jordan, I just I think something that's really important. The reason why I'm able to talk about these things that you think no one would ever understand, like, oh my God, I can't believe he's telling the world that this little life is so insignificant. Like before we know it, I'll be gone. You know, the, it feels like these, these singular lives are really important that, okay, I gotta, when the best thing that we can do for all of everyone, which is a reflection of ourselves, is to be open and honest about this human experience that is incredibly confusing, incredibly difficult. And yeah, we've all got it. The more open and honest we can be, the more we're going to realize that we're not alone. Totally. Yeah. And so um, how long ago was it when your book came out? And is that when you moved out of living with your, uh, with your sister? No, so my book just came out uh, right at two months ago, actually. Oh, congrats. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, man. I've been working on it for about six years. Um, I actually thought the book was over before I came to Hawaii. Like I wrote it like it was over, and then I came to Hawaii, and now there's three Hawaii chapters. And a lot of things actually come full circle in Hawaii. As much as I thought that, all right, no more, it's done, you know, I still had a lot to learn, and I still have lots to learn, you know. As long as I'm in a physical body, as long as we're here, there's still more lessons to learn. And um, one of my favorite sayings that I learned 
when I was in the business world is either you're green and growing or you're ripe and dying. Did you ever reconnect with your ex Carmen? Yeah. So she was the first person to read the first draft of my book. Um, she hasn't read the the final like polished version with the added Hawaii chapters, but I am still in, in contact with her brother, which is great. You know, she got remarried. She's had at least one more kid, maybe two more kids, but she seems like she's in a good place. Um, so it feels good, but yeah, we don't speak or anything like that, but I am in contact with her brother and her brother gives me updates and, you know, I care about her. I always will, but in a very different way. Sure. Wow. And you mentioned that, you know, you've really discovered poetry along the journey. Has that um, been something that you're always attracted to? Or is that more recent since your awakening? Um, I've always been naturally talented at writing. Um, I remember in, it was either in seventh or eighth grade. I remember our teacher had us write a poem about winter. You know, it was like Christmas was coming up. And I remember I wrote a poem about being stuck out in the cold and having to use each other's body warmth to keep each other warm. And I remember she put it up, posted it on the back of the room and she kept it up there all year. So I knew I had somewhat of a, a talent, but the arts were never encouraged in my household. Uh, it was sports and money, you know, academics on, you know, what makes money. Um, so there was never any encouragement in any sort of artistic endeavors. Um, the poetry really started to blossom. Um, it was actually before um, I planned the murder and everything. Or yeah, it was before I planned the murder because that's when I wrote my first song. We got we had a uh, personality profile at my work. It was called the Harrison profile, if I remember correctly. And I'd done different personality profiles before. You know, there's lots of them out there, but this one was different because it tested for ingenuity and most people on a zero to 10 scale are between a zero and two. You know, they think inside the box, this is the way things are, have always been done. This is the way it works. And when I got my scores back, my managing partner made a kind of a big deal out of it because he got a big deal out of it from the guy who does the tests. And he said that I was the fifth person out of over 25,000 people to get a 10 out of 10. So I always knew I was creative. I always knew I had this creative energy. I know I could write stories, like make up funny stories and write about just like making people laugh. Um, but this was that really, all right, this is proof in the pudding. Fifth person out of over 25,000, that is incredibly low percentage so I was like, all right, I need to start doing something with this. And that's when I started writing songs. Uh, my cousin played guitar. That's when I started learning how to play guitar. I was 30 years old at the time. Um, so I was writing songs and they were pretty entertaining songs, good songs. My cousin loved them, but they're, you know, the depth didn't really come until I was broken. And once I was broken, then these, you know, these words that I've written, it's some powerful things. Um, sometimes I, I mean, it's been a while since I write, I don't write very often anymore. Um, most of my poetry came within about a six month period, but I remember writing some of them and I was like, Whoa, <laughs> kind of, 
taken back and like, I don't know where that came from, but that, that's pretty awesome, man. <laughs> um, can I share my favorite one? Would love that. This is actually my most controversial poem. So just to warn you, if I were born David, I would have defeated Goliath. If I were born Judas, I would have betrayed Jesus. If I were born Gandhi, I would have freed India. If I were born Hitler, I would have massacred millions. If I were born you, I'd be listening to this now. So the way that that's written and the way I wrote that poem is that I would be reading this now. Mm-hmm. And more than anything, I know that some people hear that and they, the thing that sticks in their mind is like predestination. And yeah, that's, that's part of it. But I wrote that poem with the purpose of helping my friend who I was living with at the time, not judge people as much, you know, like for a month or two, we were living together and he would judge somebody for something. And I was like, dude, if, if I was born Hitler, I would have been Hitler. You know, I kept, I kept saying that. And as soon as that first line came to me, it's like, okay, well, everybody for the most part wants to believe that, Hey, yeah, if I was born David, yeah, I would have defeated Goliath. But then it starts going to those, those more difficult roles that has led us to where we are today. You know, if Judas hadn't have been Judas, the Bible wouldn't be what the Bible is. If Hitler wasn't Hitler, we would not be where we are today. So it's, you know, just like my dad, we have to have that darkness so the light can shine. So yeah. looking at anyone and, and it's not like I'm saying that we don't need to try to stand up to injustice. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. I, I want to shine the light as much as I can and protect the innocent and do everything that we can. But if you're seeing someone doing something terrible, know that they're a broke person, you know, that hurt people, hurt people. That's a pretty generic term, but it's true. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you listening to that one, but that one does r- rub some people the very wrong way and it, it's hard for them to hear. But I believe that, um, a little bit of a pushing people's buttons to really just get them to think a little bit more, is is a good thing. Yeah, most definitely. Do you believe that everything is predestined or do you have free will? I believe in predestination. So it's the illusion of free will. Uh, That's the way that I see it. Uh, And again, Jordan, I don't want to tell anyone that, hey, this is the truth. This is how things are. This is what is. Believe anything that you want to believe. This is just what I've came to in my personal life. Um, something I do like to ask people. So I got bombarded by some very, very strong Christians, uh, the other day. And actually I'm going to be on a YouTube channel with 1.2 million followers where this guy, he didn't tell me that he was a hardcore Christian, but he told me that, Hey, I got this YouTube thing. I have my crew here. Will you interview? Uh, we're going to talk about what we think happens in the afterlife. Uh And you know, it's a Sunday night a couple weeks ago and lights and cameras and 
he, I could tell that what he tries to do is he says a lot and tries to get you to kind of sound dumb. <laughs> I think I did a really good job because he, you know, throws out Bible verses and this is why this, this is this, this, what do you think about that? You know, really quick and then sticks the microphone in your face. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> but something I like to get some of these people to think about is what I asked him. I was like, okay. And I'll just ask you, Jordan, do you think that you're supposed to exist? Yeah, I think so. So you think you're supposed to be in, you're supposed to be here. Well, think about the thousands and thousands of people that had to decide to have sex or not decide, whatever, however that happened for you to be exactly who you are. Hmm. Like all of these, I mean, the butterfly effect, right? Right. If one little thing changes in the past, then you're probably not who you are. Totally. And so just cracking that open, cracking that thought process is like, well, wow, that's, that's a pretty interesting concept because yeah, I mean, what if, you know, your great, 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 great grandpa didn't choose to have a sandwich that day and meet your, your, you know, your grandma or whatever that might've been. Right. And they try to, and I think the, what they will try to say is that, no, we do have free will, but he keeps us in these, you know, kind of like bumpers on a on a bowling alley. But that's not the way that things work because one little thing changes and everything changes. Um, so I, I do, and a lot of the, you know these these Christians, the the very extreme Christians, they want to believe that, or they'll say that, you know, well, if if reincarnation's real then what's the point of doing good? Then I can just do whatever I want. And that's really missing the point because when you are seeing everyone as a reflection of yourself, you're like, you lose the, that selfishness because for me to be selfish is to do the best by you because every single person is just another reflection of myself. And that's the reason also why I'm such a big believer in mirror work. Um, If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook or anything like that, there are over a thousand videos of me going in the mirror, pressing record, telling myself how beautiful I am, how much I love myself, and being really, really goofy. I think the more serious we take that person in the mirror, the more serious you are going to be with everyone else. The more you can just let your guard down and be like, I'm a goofy dude, man. Like you were goofy when you were a kid. And most of us only let that, you know, we all have like little kitty voices in us and like, Usually we only let that be seen by a significant other when we've really gotten close and we can just start kind of just playing like kids and all that. But why not have more of that in in our everyday life? Like we don't have to walk around and take life so seriously. The more ease and love and compassion you can have for yourself. And I know that the self-love thing is, is a big coined term, you know, especially in the recent, you know, let's say five or 10 years. Well, with my book, something I'm really trying to encourage is that you can't truly love yourself as deeply as you want to unless you can first forgive yourself. So we all have things that we have shame and guilt about. Well, if you really want to have the deepest love that is that exists like with everyone and you want, let's say you have a significant other and you want that relationship to be more deep. 
the way that you can work on that relationship is by working on your relationship with yourself. If you're not, then you're, you know, masks are heavy. You know, if, if we're not able to open up about like, let's say like, so just with my last um, partner, um, my girlfriend, we were together for about a year and communication was big. You know, this was just a year ago that, or a year and a half ago that we broke up. We're still best friends. And I believe the reason that we're still best friends is because vulnerability played such an important role from our relationship from the get go. I mean, the way that she really got to know me is by reading my book. Like she read the first half of my book and she was like, Hey, let's meet up at the beach. I need to talk to you. Um, and it really starts conversations. Uh, a guy uh, just, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Um, he bought my book two weeks ago. So I moved to Honolulu to walk around Waikiki Beach with a sign that says free poetry. I do this every day now. I'm walking around with a sign saying free poetry and then People, some people ask me, Hey, what's this about? I'll recite a poem and then I'll tell them about my book and hopefully they buy a book. Well, this guy bought my book and then it's been two weeks and he just showed back up. He's like, dude, I've been reading your book and it's actually really helped my relationship with my girlfriend. He said that she started reading it. He said he's about halfway through it and then she started reading it. And when she got to the chapter, you know, it's chapter four where I lose my virginity. And she said that she had something very similar happen to her. She said that she was guilted into having sex. And he just thanked me that it's opening up conversations between them. And now he's learning more about her. The more we're really able to be seen and we really let the parts, the ugly parts, the parts that we think aren't lovable be seen, the more it allows the other person to open up. So <laughs> it's going to deepen every relationship that you have in your life. Like, you'd be amazed by all the, I mean, people tell me some heavy stuff. Like it's because I tell them mine and they're like, oh my God, like now I could, I feel like I can actually tell you and you're not going to judge me. And I do think it's really important. So, Let's say you do have something you have shame or guilt about and you want to get it off your chest. Like I heard Nick and Jordan talking about this vulnerability thing. And I, I, I think that might be a good idea. I should probably take that advice. Find your closest friend or loved one, someone that you think that won't judge you and tell them, hey, I listen to this podcast about vulnerability. I really just want to get some stuff off my chest. Are you open to us just talking about some stuff and just like me opening up to you about whatever it may be? And great. But something I want to really make sure is clear that if you open up to that person and if that person meets you with any sort of shame or guilt, that's their own. It's not yours. So if you let them know, hey, I molested my sister growing up or whatever, you know, you know, I, I, or whatever it might be. I, I have someone that has actually opened up to me about that, that they had never told anyone about that. It, it's something that, and just the courage that it takes to tell someone 
well, how did I react? I was like, I was, I was blown away by this guy's courage. Like, uh, th- that's amazing that he was able to do that. Now, if he acted like that never happened and shoved it down, it's my belief that that pattern will repeat itself, you know, next lifetime or whatever it may be, he's going to continue to be the abuser. Um, so it really breaks down walls. Um, it deepens our human connection. It builds more compassion. It brings up more empathy. Um, and it starts that healing process within ourselves. Cause like I said earlier, you, you can't truly deeply love yourself until you can really forgive yourself. And how can you forgive yourself if you're not even willing to address what happened or, you know, so I talk about it in my book that we're not defined by our past, but that's only true if we're able to actually look at it and reflect on it and be real about it. Like my dad, in my opinion, is a pedophile. Now, if my dad, without, you know, being convicted, because there are people in prison that yet, once they get arrested, they'll talk about this stuff because, you know, they're already arrested. They've already been convicted. But unless my dad were to actually say, oh my God, you know, I, I, I was in a really dark place. I did some really messed up things. This is, and Again, some of these things I don't believe this lifetime is not the time that they're going to be healed. Um, but if, let's say, he were to able to actually confront that and be real about it, that's when I would say he's no longer, in my opinion, labeled as a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we cannot actually the way we're not defined by the past is to by actually recognizing it, being real about it. Yep. Are you at all familiar with MK Ultra? I'm not. Please enlighten me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a it's a long rabbit hole we could go down, but it's um you know it's a CIA project that came out in the 70s during the Church Committee that you know the CIA was messing around with people's consciousness and you know using psychedelic drugs, etc. I'm a little um, familiar. You're giving people yeah, LSD yeah. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know the official story is that it stopped when they found out about it think the practical reality is that the program itself uh, is much deeper, much darker, and has continued up to and including the present day. Um, and the reason I bring it up is I think that as more comes to light about the powers that be and um, the way that humans have been subjugated historically, right? I think we'll we'll find some pretty shocking things about how organized crime has used systemic pedophilia, mind control and trauma to really cause significant harm across, across the population. And I think, uh, you know, I think perfect example, you look at, you know, what, um, what broke with the spotlight case in the, in the um, Catholic church in Boston. I think that was, you know, maybe early two thousands that that story broke point is I think we'll, we'll learn that this was a very systemic thing. And so I think it's important that guys like you are able to come forward and tell your truth and, and help families and, and just individuals find a path to healing and to confronting those darker sides of, of the reality that we've all been living in for quite some time. 
I appreciate that, man. And, you know, we're all in it together. We're all just trying to figure this thing out. And it's really confusing. And I really hope that the listeners that are listening to this this podcast can really just grasp the fact that, okay, my understanding of vulnerability might be a little backwards. And I read a book called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. It's It was before I was married. She's great. She's incredible. Yeah. Um, and that's more the academia side, but just a quick little blip from that Daring Greatly. The thing that really stuck in my mind is that, all right, if you like, let's just take me, for instance, you're listening to this podcast and you're listening to me talk about all these embarrassing and terrible things that I did. And you're like, man, that guy, Nick, he's really courageous. Like that guy's got balls. But if you had the exact same experiences and you're thinking, okay, I could never tell anyone about that because people are going to hate me. They're going to shame me. They're never going to understand. They won't get it. I'm so for whatever reason, it's backwards in our mind. We see someone else do it. We're like, Oh my God, that person's courageous. But if we think about ourselves doing it for whatever reason, we think that we're going to be judged and we're going to get all this shame and guilt. So it's a, it's a thing that's backwards in our mind. And until until I actually really put it into deep practice, you know, like Brene Brown's got the academic side of to it. I'm putting it to the test. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm being met with a lot of love. I love that. And it's, it's really interesting what you're bringing up because I just posted a quote from, uh, from Julian Assange yesterday. So the question to him was, what has been your biggest disappointment? And he said, learning that even intelligent people can be cowards and that courage is a much rarer attribute than intelligence. Hmm. It's a little, little bit different. Hmm. He's coming at it from a little bit different perspective, but I, I, I think the end point is that, you know, courage is a very rare attribute. It is very important. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate to me to see how much I think people hold back from confronting reality from self-actualizing their highest potential good simply because their fear of the ridicule of peers, which probably isn't even what would happen if they were honest and courageous. <laughs> yep. I'm living proof. I'm living proof. You can do it and you'll be met with love. You know, Jim Carrey has a quote and it might've been something that he got from somewhere else, but he said that every single decision that we make is out of fear or love. And that was something that I, I continually, like as I went through my awakening and spiritual unfolding, is that I would continue to ask myself that. It's like, all right, am I making this decision out of fear or love? And just try to try to work that into your day, to all the things you're doing. Yeah, I agree. It's And I love that you bring up Jim Carrey. His, uh, his commencement speech um, at Maharishi International was like what – gave me the courage to quit my old job and start a company and then kind of came full circle uh, where um, I ended up enrolling at MIU. So it's kind of cool how that all, uh, how that all happened. But yeah, I mean, I think he also mentioned something in that specific speech about like, you can, you can fail at what you don't want to do. So you might as well take a chance at doing what you love. (laughs) 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, Jim Carrey is one of my favorite people alive. Um, there's another quote that I have, and I believe it's from that commencement speech uh, that's in my book. But he said that I was going out in the world trying to be something bigger than myself until someone smarter than myself told me that there is nothing bigger than myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love so that. So that, that quote's at the end of my book. And, yeah. Uh, wow, that's cool. And, you know, you were talking, uh, I think, kind of throughout the um, interview for sure. And also when we were chatting before we got rolling about the standards of what kind of society presents to us as what makes a successful man. Um, and I'd be curious to get your take on, you know, what do you think is the vision of what it means to be a man we're, we're presented? And what does being what what does masculine masculine excellence mean to you today? Sure, this is a really good question. So. As I was going growing up in the South in a very patriarchal household, it was all right. First way to prove that I'm a man is prove that I'm not scared of anything, that I'm willing to fight, that I'll stand up and, you know, my physical dominance. Like I, I, I'm willing to fight anybody. Second thing was dominance over women. That all right, I can sleep with a lot of women, that I women love me and that I can, you know, play them and whatever it might be. And then the third thing was, all right, now I need to make money. I need to have this physical part of the world controlled and that I, I, I have power. Um, and now I think one of the most powerful ways to really bring true masculinity into play is vulnerability. <laughs> it's something that for years and generations and generations that we thought was the exact opposite. Like, no, in order to be a man, you need to be strong. You need to not ever cry, not show any sort of weakness. And it makes sense that that definition has played its role throughout human history. I mean, for a long time in human history, we have to go out and fight wars. You know, we got to be a protector and a protector only. Well, now, we're at a much different time in human history and we're actually trying to grow in different ways and we don't have to fight off the tiger or the lion that's going to come try to get our food. So the vulnerability aspect, you know, I still believe that being courageous is, I mean, I believe that that's a masculine and a feminine uh, trait and it's one that we all value. Like, Everybody thinks that courage is a, is a valuable trait. Well, real courage is being vulnerable, is really opening up about the hard stuff. Like if you're trying to say that, hey, you don't have any problems, that I'm a man, that I've got all my stuff taken care of, I never get sad, like I, no, I'm just tough, 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 tough. You're really doing the future generations a disservice. Uh, my dad in, you know, in a lot of, I believe that the generation before us, the trend was that if I'm going to raise the best kids, then I need to not show them any of my mistakes that I've made. They need to try to see me as some perfect parent. I didn't make any mistakes. I'm great. Like the guy that I'm living with right now, he's an alcoholic. He, he's getting through it right now, but 
his dad was an alcoholic and his dad never told him, you know, his dad never opened up to him about going into rehab. Well, that would have been a vulnerable thing and that would have deepened the connection with his son and that would have helped the healing process. So if we can really embrace more vulnerability, I think that's one of the key traits to a real manhood. Um, but another aspect is that, you know, are we going to create a space for women to truly feel safe? Um, I believe that that is a, a big thing when it comes to men. And when I say safe, it means yeah, I really think talking about boundaries is something that we could talk about for days. Yeah. Um, and just because a woman needs space or even, you know, a feminine man, you know, let's not just say that it's just women because there's, there's men and women that have all sorts of the combination of femininity and masculinity. So to pinhole it as to just masculine, like I believe that the creative energy within me is more of the feminine mm -hmm. fire. Um, but the more I'm able to embrace my femininity, the more of a strong man I actually come off as. Like I am incredibly comfortable with, you know, so I tell you I do the self-love videos. There are lots of them where I, oh my God, you're so pretty. And, you know, just like acting like a girl and just like having fun with myself and being goofy. Well, I believe that that is a masculine trait, like to be really comfortable in being, you know, having fun and, and yeah. embracing more of the feminine side. The more we can actually recognize that we have both within us, I believe is a very strong trait that, hey, I'm a man. And, and you know, there's a, they say that there's a scale of, you know, let's just say it's zero to 10 on homosexuality um and wherever you fall is perfect i am a zero you know like I, I don't have any sort of sexual attraction whatsoever towards a man but does that mean that i can't you know give a guy a kiss on the cheek and and tell a gay guy i love him and give him a hug and i mean dude i go to a, a clothing optional beach where i will give a gay guy's hugs while i'm naked like it's because I'm incredibly confident in who I am and it, I'm not putting meaning to anything. And to uh, let's just rewind a little bit because all of this really goes back to the opinions of others. The more concerned you are with how you're looking to other people or the, the judgments that's coming from others, the less strong you are actually inside the less you care about what anyone thinks the more people will actually love you it's it's yeah. another jim carrey thing so jim carrey said you know like when he comes out and he's like how are y'all doing all righty then you know he doesn't even let people answer he said the first time that he did that he had an aha moment he's like oh my god the the audience reacted way more strongly because they could tell that I didn't care how they felt. <laughs> like I'm just, I'm not worried about their opinions. I'm just being me. Um, 
I was talking to my friend about this the other night, like, you know, when he first moved to Hawaii, um, he was trying to make friends and he was using sarcasm a lot. And, you know, he was always trying to think to say the funny thing. Yeah. It's like, man, if you're trying to do, if you're trying to do anything, you're trying to be funny, you're not giving your, your whole, whole self. Like the, I'm funny. I'm a really funny guy, (laughs) but I don't try to be funny. It's not like I have to try. Life is funny. Funny things will happen. So the more you're trying to put on a front or try to, I need to be this way in front of these people, or I can't let this side be seen. The authentic you that's underneath all the mask is the most lovable thing that exists. That's where all the creativity lies. That's where your authenticity lies. And we all want love. And we think that the way that we can get love is by being a certain way or trying to fit in. The opposite of fitting in is belonging. If you have it in your heart that, hey, I belong every single place that I put my foot is where I belong. Like I'm right where I'm supposed to be all the time. Take it or leave it. I don't care if you like me and whatever. This is me. Yeah. When you have that attitude and that's deeply rooted inside of you, people can't help but to love you. <laughs> it's like that, that guy's awesome. He doesn't give a shit. Like, and he, you know, and I love everybody. It's because, you know, I love myself so much. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean that I don't still have to have boundaries. And, you know, I mean, all the, it's a very complex scenario when you're saying, all right, I just love and accept everybody. Yes, but you still have to. You know, there's that, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, discernment. Discernment is a very difficult aspect. It, it, it's something that takes practice. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it's exceptionally important, especially in, you know, the modern age where, you know, I think to, um, to great benefit, right? The internet and social media, et cetera, have democratized the sharing of information, but you know, with the good comes the bad naturally. Right. And so now you need to, as an individual, be able to practice logic and reasoning and discernment and make sure that, you know, what you're reading actually makes sense and that, you know, the author has integrity, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely. Well, Nick, man, this has been such a fun conversation. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. For folks who want to find Who Am I, where uh, can they go uh, to learn more? On Amazon. So, and if you enjoy the sound of my voice, uh, the Audible book just dropped two days ago. So that's something I'm super excited about. Thank you so much. So yeah, this is the cover. It's Who Am I? Nicholas Jordan Moore. Um vulnerability equals power ability is the subtitle but uh, if you just type in who am i look for that face you should see it um but yeah there's it's on audible and it's on kindle as well um yeah i'm just pointing people towards amazon i think or audible i think that's the the best place to to go to find me and if you want really like self-love videos you can find me on instagram papa p-a-p-a underscore infinite awesome Well, Nick, thanks again, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Jordan, thank you so much, man. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Me too.
Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, Nick and I discussed the power of vulnerability. The strength we can find within ourselves by taking off our masks leads to deeper self-worth and interpersonal connections. There's no one more qualified to explain the power of vulnerability than professor and author Brene Brown. Here's what she had to say about it during her 2011 TED Talk. Connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. It's why we're here. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to start with connection. Well, you know that, that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss and she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome and one thing that you can't, you know, an opportunity for growth? Um, and all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently this is the way my work went as well, because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you their most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, the stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection. The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough, um, the thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. If I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, that's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness. They have a strong sense of love and belonging and folks who struggle for it, and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it, and that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. And to me, the hard part of the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection was something that personally and professionally I felt like I needed to understand better. So what I did is I took all of the interviews where I saw worthiness, where I saw people living that way, and just looked at those. What do these people have in common? And I have, I have a slight office supply addiction, but that's another talk. Um, so I had a manila notebook, a manila folder, and I had a Sharpie. And I was like, what am I going to call this research? And the first words that came to my mind were wholehearted. 
These are kind of wholehearted people living from this deep sense of worthiness. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the, reason, for the ex explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very, you know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. And so then I went back into the research and spent the next couple of years really trying to understand what they, the wholehearted, um, what the choices they were making and, and what, what, is, what, what are we doing with vulnerability? Why do we struggle with it so much? Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. So this is what I learned. We numb vulnerability. When we're waiting for the call, it was funny, I sent something out on Twitter and on Facebook that says, how would you define vulnerability? What makes you feel vulnerable? And within an hour and a half, I had 150 responses. Because um, I wanted to know, you know, what, what's out there? Having to ask my husband for help because I'm sick and we're newly married. Um, initiating sex with my husband. Initiating sex with my wife. Being turned down. Asking someone out. Waiting for the doctor to call back. Getting laid off. Laying off people. This is the world we live in. We live in a vulnerable world. Um, and one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. And I think there's evidence, and it's not the only reason this evidence exists, but I think that there, it's a, a, a huge cause. We are the most in debt, obese, addicted, 
and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. The problem is, and I learned this from the research, that you cannot selectively numb emotion. You can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment. I don't want to feel these. I'm going to have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. <laughs> I don't want to feel these. And I know that's, no I know that's knowing laughter. I, I hack into your lives for a living. I know that's, <laughs> God. Um, you can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects or emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. And then we are miserable and we are looking for purpose and meaning. And then we feel vulnerable. So then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. And it becomes this dangerous cycle. Um, one of the things that I think that we need to think about is why and how we numb. And it doesn't just have to be addiction. The other thing we do is we make everything that's uncertain, certain. Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. That's it. Just certain. The more afraid we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more afraid we are. This is what politics looks like today. There's no discourse anymore. There's no conversation. There's just blame. You know, what blame, you know how blame is described in the research? A way to discharge pain and discomfort. We perfect. If there's anyone who wants their life to look like this, it would be me. But it doesn't work, because what we do is we take fat from our butts and put it in our cheeks. Which just, I hope in 100 years, people will look back and go, wow. You know. <laughs> um, and we perfect, most dangerously, our children. Let me tell you what we think about children. They're hardwired for struggle when they get here. When you hold those perfect little babies in your hand, our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. My job is just to keep her perfect, make sure she makes a tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh grade. <laughs> That's not our job. Our job is to look and say, you know what? You're imperfect and you're wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. That's our job. Show me a generation of kids raised like that and we'll end the problems I think that we see today. We pretend that what we do doesn't have an effect on people. We do that in our personal lives. We do that corporate, whether it's a bailout, an oil spill, a recall. We pretend like what we're doing doesn't have a huge impact on other people. I would say to companies, this is not our first rodeo, people. We just need you to be authentic and real and say, we're sorry, we'll fix it. But there's another way, and I'll leave you with this. This is what I have found, to let ourselves be seen, deeply seen, vulnerably seen to love with our whole hearts, even though there's no guarantee. And that's really hard, and I can tell you as a parent, that's excruciatingly difficult. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments of kind of terror, when we're wondering, can I love you this much? Can I believe in this as passionately? Can I be this fierce about this? 
just to be able to stop and instead of catastrophizing what might happen to say, I'm just so grateful because to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive. And the last, which I think is probably the most important, is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place, I believe, that says, I'm enough, then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. Nick and I also discussed how Jim Carrey, the actor and comedian, has inspired us to embrace vulnerability. How he taught us to stare down fear and instead choose love. To confront and accept the darkness within each of us. I have fond memories from my childhood of watching Ace Ventura Pet Detective with my family on repeat. Dumb and Dumber remains my favorite comedy of all time. I'm eternally grateful for Jim's artistry, for the laughter and joy his work bestowed on my friends and family. And then in 2018, I came across Jim Carrey's commencement speech at a quirky university in the middle of Iowa called Maharishi International University, or MIU. While I'd never heard of the school at that time, Carrey's words of guidance affected me profoundly. So much so that he inspired me to quit my corporate job and take the entrepreneurial leap of faith. Along the way, this commencement speech ended up being the first in a series of synchronicities that led me to begin Transcendental Meditation and to enroll in a master's program at MIU, two of the best decisions of my life. Yet that would not be the end of my journey with Mr. Carey. Over the last several years, I've been forced to confront the fact that Hollywood has an insidious dark side, a topic I covered in depth in Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton? This darkness extends to Jim Carrey, who I now have good reason to believe that, more likely than not, has committed unspeakable crimes. Crimes for which I'll never be able to forgive, which Carrey will have to atone for when he meets his maker. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please watch the documentary Out of Shadows and then research a man named Isaac Cappy, an American hero whose death five years ago will not be in vain. In facing this truth about the influence of organized crime within Hollywood and beyond, I've lost most of the heroes I once looked up to. Yet what I lost in idol worship, I gained in truth, clarity, and faith, many times over. And I've learned to separate the art from the artist. I now understand that we must all confront darkness to achieve transcendence. The darkness within ourselves and the darkness within society. In confronting this darkness, we find faith and allow the light to shine brightly. So with that recognition of light-dark duality, here are those words of inspiration from Jim Carrey's 2014 commencement speech. Now fear is going to be a player in your life, but you get to decide how much. You can spend your whole life imagining ghosts, worrying about the pathway to the future, but all there will ever be is what's happening here and the decisions we make in this moment which are based in either love or fear. So many of us choose our path out of fear disguised as practicality. What we really want seems impossibly out of reach and ridiculous to expect, so we never dare to ask the universe for it. I'm saying I'm the proof that you can ask the universe for it. Please. <laughs> And if it doesn't happen for you right away, it's only because the universe is so busy fulfilling my order. (laughs) 
party size. <laughs> My father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't believe that that was possible for him. And so he made a conservative choice. Instead, he got a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old, he was let go from that safe job. And our family had to do whatever we could to survive. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. We're not the avatars we create. We're not the pictures on the film stock. We are the light that shines through. All else is just smoke and mirrors, distracting, but not truly compelling. I've often said that I wished people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Like many of you, I was concerned about going out into the world and doing something bigger than myself until someone smarter than myself made me realize that there is nothing bigger than myself. <laughs> my soul is not contained within the limits of my body. My body is contained within the limitlessness of my soul, one unified field. One unified field of nothing, dancing, for no particular reason, except maybe to comfort and entertain itself. Now I'm always at the beginning. I have a reset button, and I ride that button constantly. Once that button is functioning in your life, there's no story that the mind could create that will be as compelling. The imagination is always manufacturing scenarios, both good and bad, and the ego tries to keep you trapped in the multiplex of the mind. <laughs> Our eyes are not viewers, they are also projectors that are running a second story over the picture that we see in front of us all the time. Fear is writing that script, and the working title is, I'll Never Be Enough. Now you're going to look at a person like me and say, how could we ever hope to reach those kind of heights, Jim? How can we make a painting that's too big for our home? How do you fly so high without a special breathing apparatus? This is the voice of the ego. <laughs> and if you listen to it, there will always be someone who is doing better than you. No matter what you gain, ego will not let you rest. It will tell you that you cannot stop until you've left an indelible mark on the earth, until you've achieved immortality. How tricky is this ego that it would tempt us with the promise of something we already possess?
As far as I can tell, it's just about letting the universe know what you want and working toward it while letting go of how it comes to pass. Your job is not to figure out how it's going to happen for you, but to open the door in your head. And when the door opens in real life, just walk through it. And don't worry if you miss your cue, because there's always doors opening. They keep opening. And when I say life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you, I really don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm just making a conscious choice to perceive challenges as something beneficial so that I can deal with them in the most productive way. You'll come up with your own style. That's part of the fun. Oh, and uh, why not take a chance on faith as well? Take a chance on faith, not religion, but faith, not hope, but faith. I don't believe in hope. Hope is a beggar. Hope walks through the fire and faith leaps over it. You are ready and able to do beautiful things in this world. And after you walk through those doors today, you will only ever have two choices, love or fear. Choose love and don't ever let fear turn you against your playful heart.